Good morning. I'm Alan Reynolds. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the, of the famous Chinese uh, saying, may you live in interesting times. Mm-hmm. It's a curse. Very inter- it's a curse. I know it is, and we are living in interesting times. I, I got to admit, I'm kind of confused about it. I, I keep hearing that financial markets are uh, freezing up and melting down. <laughs> I mean... And then I ask for an explanation, and they tell me we the trouble is we have way too much debt and not nearly enough credit. <laughs> so I, I, it's I think we're <laughs> Americans <laughs> deplore debt, but they love credit. Global <laughs> warming. Boy, we could have used some global warming around here this morning. I'll tell you, it was cold. <laughs> We're lucky to have a panel of very smart people, some of my uh, uh, wisest friends uh, over the years, uh, the first of whom is Brian Westbury, who I've known since he was really a little boy. Um, and he's chief economist now at First Trusters Advisors. It's, it's an investment bank in Chicago. There are investment banks in places like Chicago, New York. Um, they're gone. Uh, the Wall Street Journal ranked him as the nation's number one economic force forecaster in 2001. USA had him in the top ten in 2004 among forecasters. He writes a monthly for uh, American Spectator magazine where he is a uh, ec- the economics editor. He's often seen in the Wall Street Journal and is a co-host on uh, CNBC's Squawk Box, which is a great show. Uh, Brian is a member of the Academic Advisory Council to the Chicago Fed. He's an adjunct professor at Wheaton College. And in uh, 1995 and 96, he was chief economist for the Joint Economic Committee here in the District of Corruption. Um, oh, and I got out. And he got out. He's in a much safer place now. Uh, his career as an economist began in 1982 at the Harris Bank. I had been at uh, First National Bank of Chicago uh, through from 76 to, to 81, back when we actually let banks like that fail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so uh, I met Westbury through uh, Bob Janetsky, who was at Harris Trust. Uh, Brian was a VP uh, with Chicago Corporation, and uh, that was before joining Griffin, Kubik, Steffens, and Thompson in 1991. He's the author of The New Era of Wealth and holds an MBA from Northwestern University, uh, Kellogg Graduate School of Management. Please welcome Brian Westbury. Well, thank you, Alan. And uh, I, I want to be as brief as possible. I hope we all are uh, so we can get to your questions. I think that's the best part of this whole event anyway. Um, you know, I have three points I want to make today. The first is, and the topic uh, that we're uh, covering today is financial innovation and monetary policy. And uh, that leads to uh, my first point, which is I do not believe that our problems, our crisis uh, today is caused by financial innovation. Let me rephrase that and say that I do not believe this is a failure of capitalism. Uh, I am not saying that Wall Street or capitalists or uh, private financial firms did not have a role in this. Uh, but I believe that they were uh, codependent, if you will, with government authorities uh, right here. And I'm going to talk a lot about the role of the Federal Reserve 
at least what I believe to be the role of the Federal Reserve in creating our current crisis. Now, let me uh, also say that uh, I do work in the private sector. I guess investment bank is a broad uh, uh, kind of uh, nomenclature for financial firms. Uh, We are not levered. Uh, as in the traditional Wall Street uh, uh, investment bank. We are a money management firm, and uh, I don't think we stand to benefit except in a very general way from any government uh, entity or any taxpayer money flying around today. I just want to see the economy do better, uh, just so uh, you know where I'm coming from. The second point that I want to get to is that, uh, and I already said this, is that uh, I do believe government policy is... Uh, largely, in fact, mostly responsible for the place we find ourselves in today. Uh, And I will uh, talk about that uh, uh, at length here in just a minute. And I also think that some of our policy responses, uh, or maybe better said, lack of responses in some cases, uh, have helped make this problem worse. So let me just start with my first point, and that is that I do not believe this is a crisis of capitalism, or of financial innovation, and I'm not sure exactly what everybody thinks when they hear those words, one of the the, uh, greatest innovations, if you think about it, in the last 20, 25 years has been the computer. Uh, For those of you who work on a trading desk, the Bloomberg machine. How would you ever value a mortgage-backed portfolio with uh, very, very interesting convexity and cash flows, uh, depending on different environments, if you didn't have a Bloomberg machine with the models that are embedded in that software. And I believe what's happened is that the computer has allowed us to manage, in a sense, risk, or at least to think we're managing risk, that we might not have been able to think we were managing before. And let me just put this in a, uh, I'm going to talk about this more deeply, but if you go back to the 1970s, we were slicing and dicing uh, oil loans in the 1970s into packages called participations and selling them to other financial institutions, just like we were doing with subprime loans today. Not necessarily tranches, not first to pay, not all of those, you know, uh, computerized models, but basically we were packaging risk that one institution had taken and we were selling it off to another institution. So the, the idea that somehow this is all brand new, I just don't buy that. Uh, yes, there are different instruments. Yes, there are different risks, but we just call it subprime today. It used to be oil loans. It used to be savings and loans. It used to be um, Latin American debt, if you will, back in the 1970s. And that's where I want to go second. Uh, Alan uh, said I started in 1982 at the Harris Bank. Uh, Bob Janeski was the chief economist there. And I started right after Burl Sprinkle had left to come here to Washington and work for Ronald Reagan. Uh, he started at the Treasury Department, uh, actually in John Taylor's recent uh, uh, post, uh, and, uh, and then ended up as the chief economist of the, uh, or the, the chairman of the, joint, uh, of the Council of Economic Advisors, and then actually on the cabinet when the market uh, crashed in 1987. Uh, so in a way, I feel like I'm a grandson, if you will, through the private sector of Milton Friedman, because Burl Sprinkle was one of uh, Milton's, in a sense, star pupils, if you will. 
Uh, also, he taught uh, at the University of Chicago as well. And so that's the, where I started. And remember that in the 60s and 70s, bank economists, monetarists would use M2 or M1 or some form of monetary, uh, of, of monetary aggregate, some monetary aggregate, pump it into the monetary equation, MV equals PQ. If money grew 6%, velocity was up 2%, the nominal GDP was going to grow 8%. And if you go back and you look at the data from the 60s and 70s, it was a wildly successful approach to forecasting. Um, now, I know that monetary data has been revised in the past, but actually Burl Sprinkle became quite famous because he was a good forecaster, and he used Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's approach to forecast the economy. But in the early 1980s, this broke down. The money supply numbers were no longer correlated well at all with economic activity. And I believe this had to do with Reg Q, the deregulation of banking, globalization. And I remember specifically in the early 1980s wrestling with this monetary equation and seeing Milton Friedman writing in the Wall Street Journal because M2 was growing after we were allowed to pay interest on checking accounts saying inflation is on its way. And not only is it on its way, it's going to be horrible. And he was using M2 growth to forecast inflation. And I hate to say this here, but Milton Friedman was wrong about that. And so that led me on a search for a different method of following the Fed. See, I still believe that the monetary approach is right. But how do you get to estimating whether the Fed is easy or not if you can't measure money? So I believe that Mises' approach of a natural rate is the right way. But instead of using, a, say, a Taylor rule where we have to estimate what the target of inflation is and what potential growth is, what I do is I just use nominal GDP growth. Now, I average it over two years, and I use a two-year average of nominal GDP to just kind of smooth things out, and I say that's the natural rate. It's pretty simple. If you think of nominal GDP as kind of top-line revenue growth, it is the average growth of the average company in America. Some companies are, like Google are growing 30, 40, 60, 80 percent a year. Other companies like the New York Times are falling 15, 16, 18 percent a year. Okay? But on average, they're growing at the nominal rate of GDP growth. So, and then if you compare the federal funds rate to that, if the funds rate is below nominal GDP, the Fed is easy. It's pretty simple. If the funds rate is above nominal GDP, the Fed's tight. Because the only way to move interest rates around is to change the money supply. So instead of looking at actual money supply, what I'm looking at is the results of the change in that money supply. Now, let me give you a brief history using this model of the last 40 or 50 years. Between 1960 and 1980, the federal funds rate was below nominal GDP growth for 88% of the time. All right. Uh, we had a massively easy policy for 20 straight years. Inflation went from 1% to 14%. Oil was $2.92 a barrel in 1965, 11 in 1975, $40 a barrel in 1980. Now, one of the things that we know is that people make decisions based on all the inputs, and basically, all the information that you need to make a decision is in the price system, the pricing system, the interest rate system. And my belief is, is that in the 1960s and 1970s, people were fooled. They believed the monetary mirage that was created for them, the glasses that the Federal Reserve created for them. And they thought, in fact, Jimmy Carter was one of them, thought we were running out of oil. 
How else could you explain that oil went from 292 to 40 dollars a barrel? So, in fact, because we were running out of oil, we had a whole series of government actions at that time to fix that problem. I think those were huge mistakes, but that wasn't the biggest mistake. One of the biggest mistakes was there was a little Penn Square bank in a strip mall in Oklahoma City. And it started making oil loans, even back in those days when we didn't have capital rules. They couldn't hold all these oil loans. I'm exaggerating about the capital rules. But they couldn't hold all these oil loans. You know what they did? They sliced them up into participations. They packaged them up in a bank right next door to the Harris Bank in Chicago, Continental Bank, bought $1 billion worth of oil loan participations. But, of course, this was a no-brainer investment, right, because we were running out of oil, and oil was just, if it was at 40, it was just pausing there because it was going to go to 100, 200, 300, and the last barrel of oil, it might be worth a trillion bucks. We could just hold on that long. And see First National Bank in Seattle bought a billion dollars in participations, I believe. Penn Square wasn't the only one. First Bank of Midland, Texas, Republic Bank. All of these banks were in the process of levering up these loans. At the same time, SNLs were putting on 6% 30-year mortgages all during the 60s and 70s. But the inflationary pressures that were building up, the mirage that people were looking at eventually broke. Paul Volcker comes in, jacks up interest rates to 21%. Held He eventually held the federal funds rate above my estimate of the natural rate for five straight years. Oil went from 40 to 35 to 30 to 25 to 20. All those oil loans went bust. Savings and loans were paying 18% for money when their assets were returning 6%. Latin American debt blew up. In fact, if we didn't have, if we had mark-to-market accounting in the early 1980s, Latin American debt alone would have taken out every single money center bank, made them insolvent. So what I'm saying is is that 20 years of bad monetary policy led to the crisis of the 80s and 90s, and I still believe that that crisis was worse than the one that we started with a year ago here. All right? Then we had 20 years of good monetary policy. Volcker and Greenspan won, I'll call it, brought down the price of oil down to about $18, $20 a barrel. And in March 1999, The Economist magazine had a cover story. You know what that cover story said? Drowning in oil. Now we're drowning in it. That was just nine years ago. Today we're running out of oil again, and I believe it's because we have held interest rates below this natural rate for way too long. One percent interest rates, especially in the early 1980s, led to an explosion in leverage. All right. Just like the 1960s and 70s, I think bad decisions were made in the private sector because we had a signaling mechanism of a low interest rate that was that was a mirage. It didn't truly exist in the world. The natural rate was actually much higher than it is. My last point is this, and that is that by cutting interest rates starting last September, I think we helped make this problem much worse. For example, in the auction rate preferred market, let's just imagine you're a participant. You're buying auction rate preferreds. Fed funds rate, it's five and a quarter. The, the LIBOR is six and six. Six, uh, five, five and three quarters, you're getting LIBOR plus 70, you're making six and a half percent on your auction rate preferreds. And then the Federal Reserve starts cutting interest rates in the middle of a crisis. Now, maybe that's a good response, but think what it does to the auction rate preferred market. Now, all of a sudden, instead of getting six and a half percent when I go buy that auction rate preferred, I'm now getting four percent. And I say, you know what? The world's a riskier place. I'm not doing that anymore. Boom, the market blows up.
At the same time, community banks who make loans at the prime rate have to cut their prime, their prime rate loans from five and a quarter plus three, from eight to eight and a quarter, down to five. They're taking in less interest income during a time of rising risk. And so what happens is I believe by cutting interest rates, in fact, we help the markets freeze up. My final point here is, that, is this, and that is that, yes, the private sector clearly made some mistakes. I think one of their biggest mistakes was uh, not pricing in the impact of mark-to-market accounting in an environment where we have interest rates too low. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, we had three, roughly 3,000 banks and savings and loans fail. Between 1983 and 1994, $900 billion in assets were in those institutions that failed. Today's dollars, that's about $1.5 trillion. And yet the economy during that entire time continued to grow at about 3.5% real rate. The difference was we didn't have mark-to-market accounting then like we do today. And I still believe that the combination of mistakes in monetary policy and mark-to-market accounting is what created this crisis and the intensity of it that we live with today. Thank you. Sorry to hear about the New York Times troubles. Maybe they can go to Hank Paulson and get a loan, start taking deposits, and and qualify for Federal Reserve assistance. I mean, there's got to be some way they can get out of it. (laughs) Poor guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Our next speaker is Charles W. Calamiris. He's the Henry Kaufman Professor of Financial Institutions at Columbia He's a professor at the School of International and Public Affairs there, and he's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He also serves as academic director of the Chazen Institute of International Business and the Center for International Business and Economic Research at Columbia. He, he co- oh, you just work too hard. This is this a long list. He co-directs the Project on Financial Deregulation at American Enterprise Institute, where he's Arthur Burns Scholar. He was a member of the Shadow Financial Regulatory Committee from 1997 to 2004, senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a chairman of the board of the Greater Atlantic Financial Corporation, which is a publicly uh, traded bank based in the District of Corruption. And he's a managing partner of Gauss Fund. Calamara served on the International Financial Institution Advisory Commission, which is a congressional commission to advise the U.S. government on reform of the IMF and World Bank. His research spans several areas, including banking, corporate finance, financial history, monetary economics. He received a B.A. from Yale and his Ph.D. from Stanford. Please welcome Charles Calamaris. Thanks very much. Um, Some of that information is a little old, which is my fault for not having updated it, but... um, I'll, I won't tell you which, which items, but it sounded impressive to me. Thanks. Dazzling. Um I do want to mention that there is a handout in case you have it. If you don't have it, don't worry, but in case you do have it, I will be referring to some of the things in the handout, uh, but I don't think uh, you'll, you'll uh, have a hard time following without it. Uh, I, I want to take the, the title of the session seriously and – when I, when I did, starting off, I was a little confused about what I should say because I'm used to um, talking these days mainly about how we got into the mess that we're in, and I'll talk a little bit about that today, and then what kinds of short-term policy interventions 
are most likely to deliver us from this particular ring of hell that we're in this month. Um, but that's not what I want to do because I thought, like the previous speaker, that, that this session was um, really asking us, challenging us to think a little bit longer term about questions relating to policy and how policy, uh, the way we think about central bank policy or, broadly speaking, monetary and regulatory policy, might have to change compared to the way it used to be as a result of some kind of structural changes in the economy which might be related to things we think of as innovations in the financial system. And so, like John Macon, what I uh, did when I started thinking about the topic was go back to what I learned a long time ago, um, back in the 70s and the 80s, and I thought how when I was in the 70s and the 80s uh, taking various classes, uh, of course I was um, in grade school, I guess, in the 80s. Uh, No, I I wasn't, but I was in graduate school and uh, an undergrad. What did we say about financial innovation and how it affected policy for central banks? Um, I think I can summarize that pretty easily. What we said was that um, money demand seemed to be pretty stable. This is, again, prior to the collapse of that relationship. And um, financial innovations, which were happening in the economy at the time, were causing shifts in money demand, but we could pretty well estimate those shifts, the effect of the rise of the commercial paper market, finance companies in the U.S., money market mutual funds, and in countries outside the U.S. could be estimated. And my first job was at the IMF as a summer intern estimating the money demand function for Brazil. And just about everybody in 1981 at the IMF, who was a summer intern, was estimating a money demand function for some country. So that gives you a little bit of a sense of how much times have changed. We were all estimating money demand functions, and the way the financial system, the primary way that financial innovations affected the way we thought about central banking was that we incorporated financial innovations through their effects on money demand. The other way that they mattered, and Ben Friedman was writing about this in the 70s, and then Ben Bernanke, uh, Rick Mishkin, and others, and then myself uh, later in the 80s, all started talking about the credit channel. Um, But the credit channel, at least the way I thought about it even back then, was that it was a sort of contingent, occasional thing to be thinking about. That is, we didn't really have a reliable, stable relationship between credit and anything that we cared about. And so innovations that were happening in the credit system outside of the monetary uh, aggregates were only occasionally relevant. And let me say what I thought – this is what I think neoclassical economics was telling us at the time, that we were really worried mainly about um, the way that the credit channel magnified severe adverse shocks. So we had this neoclassical uh, investment equation, and the neoclassical investment equation, it was really only during pretty severe shocks and only then for some firms, let's call them small growing firms, that we needed to focus on – sort of quantity rationing or credit channels coming from the the banking or financial system. Other than that, we could pretty well understand investment um, without that, and we could understand policy without a focus on credit channels. So basically, thinking about financial innovations through these two different mechanisms, we pretty much estimated our money demand function, and we occasionally worried about credit channel magnifying downturns, like during the Great Depression – in Bernanke's classic 1983 article. But aside from that, 
we didn't really think much about monetary policy or regulatory policy being driven by these kinds of innovations. Now, that things have changed a lot since then. Um, and I would say that now what people are talking about, and you heard it in some of the previous sessions, was how financial innovation and structural changes in the economy have given rise to a new threat, which I'm going to call the credit bubble threat. The credit bubble threat is very much unlike the old story I told you, which is that we're not just worried about credit magnifying downturns. We're worried about credit supply, particularly when it's abundant, uh, creating excessive boom cycles that lead to financial busts. Of course, that's not arising in the context of a neoclassical model of investment or anything else. Um, and furthermore, it's, and I want to emphasize this, it's very much linked to a couple of other trends that people have been talking about, which you could call financial innovations. They're the financial innovations I think are most important for understanding why we're even talking about this new credit boom threat or credit bubble threat. The biggest of those is the increase, trend increase over the past 30 years throughout the world in the protection that's given by governments to financial institutions. That is the single most important source of this credit boom threat and the single biggest contributor to financial instability throughout the world. Um, secondly, there have been some other trends that have helped magnify that. One is a shift toward much more consumer credit relative to corporate credit. And consumer credit tends to be much more prone to these kinds of excessive booms for a variety of reasons. Um, but more importantly, it magnifies the political problems of that have given rise to these excessive safety nets or, or protections given to banks. Because when consumer credit is at stake, the political sort of populist uh, rhetoric that surrounds the need to bail out uh, excessive um, credit and the lenders that provide it, of course, gets much more uh, sharp. Now, when I was talking about this, I was recently in Colombia working for the central bank there, and I was telling them I'm coming to the Cato Institute to talk about regulatory uh, reforms given financial innovations and talking about these structural changes I just described to you, which I think are the two main financial innovations driving this concern. They said, well, this is going to be a short talk. You're, first of all, um, you're going to the Cato Institute, so we assume that it's good enough just to stand up and say, uh, well, we'd really be better off without all these safety net uh, policies that have throughout the world encouraged uh, huge financial instability and kind of leave it at that. And I said, well, you know, one could do that. In fact, uh, I would be willing to say here right now that I believe as a financial historian and as a finance economist that I could prove to you if I had a little bit more time than the chairman is going to give me, that deposit insurance is not a good idea. Franklin Roosevelt was right to oppose it in 1933. Uh, it's a great irony that it's one of the two great legacies of the New Deal. It was uh, something that he only did because of a political compromise, and he knew it was a bad idea when he did it, and he would have forecast all the problems we've had as a result of having done it. So, sure, we shouldn't have these, I think. We have far too excessively generous safety nets, the GSEs are also on my list, Fannie and Freddie, and a whole raft of policies like that, and not just in the U.S., but all around the world. But that's just far too easy, uh, easy for a professor and hard for a politician. That is, 
I can say we shouldn't have these safety net policies, and I can bemoan this structural change that's given rise to this credit boom risk. But in fact, that's not really what we need. What we really need is a plan for what do we do given the political realities. And there are three harsh political realities. One is we have much more protection than is desirable. Number two, the uh, financial institutions that have that protection are often able to capture regulatory agencies who make prudential rules about them. And number three, they're also able to, uh, one way or another, through the political process, capture supervisors who are supposed to enforce prudential rules, those prudential rules, to prevent abuse of those rules such as they are. And so we really have a pretty daunting problem because I'm going to argue we really can't politically get to an optimal regulatory system, an optimal financial risk-taking system. And so what we have to try to do is make regulatory and monetary policy in a second-best world where these realities, these three political realities, are kind of inescapable. So what do I think we, we are going – so now I want to return to the question. So does that mean does, – does the – let's just take the safety net as the most obvious one. Does the rise of an overly generous safety net mean – that monetary policy has to do something that, or let's call it macro prudential regulatory policy, and I'll distinguish these three policies. I'll try to go quickly. Monetary policy means controlling the interest rate or the money supply per se. Macro prudential regulatory policy means taking account of credit flows and asset prices to do other kinds of policies, and I'll describe what those are. Those are going to be in the banking regulatory policy area. And then there's microprudential policy, and that means regulating individual institutions based on their individual performance. You see, we now have this debate over this third thing, this middle thing called macroprudential policy, not just regulating individual institutions based on their own circumstances, but using capital regulations, provisioning regulations, reserve requirements, other kinds of banking regulations to try to affect the situation of the overall financial system as a result of an aggregate indicator like credit growth and asset price growth. And I'm actually going to advocate this. I'll tell you, give you the bottom line here. I'm going to What I'm basically going to advocate is that monetary policy should stick to its knitting of inflation and unemployment, something like a Taylor rule, something like a a price stability target, and that we should should reform and improve microprudential regulation. That's crucial. And there are ways to do it uh, that are going to be politically robust. And that third, we need to, for those same political reasons, develop macroprudential regulation too. The the key to my discussion is the need to develop not just economically desirable mechanisms, but to develop politically robust mechanisms. So we're, first of all, going to envision needing these mechanisms precisely because of these three political realities I mentioned before. And then secondly, when we devise interventions by regulators, rules, prudential regulation, we have to devise them in a way that is politically robust, likely to be enforceable and meaningful. This is really not easy. And so that's why, despite the fact that it seemed like a joke to come to the Cato Institute to talk about all the regulation that we needed, in fact, it's not a joke. Because if you start off as a libertarian, but a politically realistic one, you want a lot of regulation. Because you want these regulations to try to minimize the distortions that are coming from primarily the change in the political reality of safety nets. 
Now, I'm not going to have a chance to go through all of this, and I know that you'll be grateful to hear that. But I do want to tell you about two, two ideas uh, quickly before I talk about prudential microregulation, two, two facts that I find particularly impressive. One of them is a, a general statistical fact, and the other is a particular case study of a country, which is one you may not know much about. The country of Colombia, not the university, but the country from 2006 to 2008. So someone stopped Bloom, uh, whatever you're doing with the Bloomberg terminal or the, uh, your uh, BlackBerry. Me. Okay. Um, so the, the key thing that uh, the BIS researchers have recently found is that there's a dual threshold criterion that would work very well for uh, triggering the need for some kind of policy intervention to cool down credit markets. And this is a direct response to uh, Don's uh, earlier sort of very, I think, uh, stimulating and correct point that central banks often can make mistakes about when they need to cool things down. Well, what Borio at, at the BIS has shown is that we have a very high signal-to-noise ratio if we, if we apply the following criterion. It's a dual-threshold criterion. Asset prices, meaning either the stock market or the real estate market in your country, are going up by a sufficiently large criterion, either one, combined with credit growth simultaneously going up by a very large percentage growth rate. If, all, if, if those are all happening at the same time, um, it's a good time to lean against the wind. Now, Colombia gives us an example of a country that leaned against the wind and took this very seriously. What did they do? Um, they did just about everything, um, but some things worked better than others. And interestingly, interest rate increases weren't very effective in leaning against the wind, but they did try them. So the financial system uh, loans in Colombia, which had been growing about 10% annually as of about December 2005, accelerated to about 27% annual growth loans in the banking system by about December of 2006. Inflation was accelerating, but only a little. It was rising from 3.5% in April 2006 to 4.8% in April 2007. By 2007, during this boom in credit growth, GDP was rising by 8%. Current account doubled from the deficit from 1.8% of GDP in 2006 to 3.6% first half of 2007. Now, I know that central banks sometimes have a hard time identifying uh, a credit bubble, but in Colombia, the central bank didn't. It said, this is a credit bubble. It uh, raised interest rates four percentage points from April 2006 to Ju July 2008, but that wasn't enough. It didn't seem to having, be having much of an effect in slowing down credit growth, and so they did a bunch of things. Increased reserve requirements, convinced the superintendency to raise provisioning on credit, effectively raising capital requirements for all financial institutions, imposed new restrictions on short-term uh, dollar-denominated borrowing from abroad, uh, and also limited not just net foreign exchange exposures over the counter, but also gross exposures because they were worried about counterparty risk concentration. This was pretty proactive. They got credit growth to, uh, to fall to 13%. They had risk-weighted assets for their banks of 14% uh, in, in the end of 2007, early 2008. And their growth rate is going to be about 3.5% for 2008 as a whole. They're in a great shape. So if you want to move to a country that has financial stability, uh, maybe you should try Colombia. 
So I think that the example of their experience and also the statistical facts that Borio has uncovered about a pretty good signal-to-noise ratio for implementing a, uh, a policy that would sl- try to slow down uh, excessive booms is very suggestive. We don't have it all figured out yet. The, the key on microprudential I need to stop is we need to incorporate credible market-based signals of bank risk into the financial regulatory process. And that means subordinated debt requirements. Uh, we ha- we're going to do them in the U.S. in 1999, but the banks lobbied the Clinton administration and Alan Greenspan and prevented it, even though the Fed was very positive in its study in 1999 on how effective that would have been. So we've, again, politics trumped good economics, but it's not too late. Let's revisit that. So my bottom line for you is, We are in a different world. The real financial innovations that matter the most are the financial innovations that are associated with government and government protection. Those have created credit booms throughout the world that often end badly. There's a large amount of research. I refer you to my Kansas City Fed um, Jackson Hole paper if you want to read about that research. And that the key thing that this really means is I do think policy has to change. We want to keep monetary policy as traditionally defined with its knitting, uh, but we do want to add a new dimension. Uh, first of all, two new dimensions, real credible microprudential regulation that's based on market signals, a minimum subordinated debt requirement with prompt corrective action rules linked to credible signals coming from markets. By the way, if you think that we didn't have those, you weren't looking at the CDS market, uh, and the CDS market gave us a lot of very good information that wasn't used by supervisors recently. And then the, the last one is we need to broaden our perspectives on what policy is to think about this new area of macroprudential regulation in which uh, Colombia is a pioneer. Thank you. I have a note here that says, will you please make an announcement, have everyone turn their cell phones off? Apparently it's causing some trouble. Um, our next speaker is Roger W. Garrison, professor at Auburn University. He's taught there uh, since 1978, and in 1983, uh, I gave a paper at Monetary Cato Monetary Conference, and he was my discussant. I think I told some people last night, uh, skip my paper, read his, his discussion. It was quite good and still, still is. Um, he's published many articles on monetary and capital theory and business cycles. His 2001 book, Time and Money, The Macroeconomics of Capital Structure, uh, was awarded the Smith Prize for the best book in Austrian economics. Garrison's published in the Wall Street Journal, Barron's. He served as president of the Society for Development of Austrian Economics in 2004, was the visiting Hayek Fellow at the London School of Economics, where he delivered the first Hayek Memorial Lecture in 2003. Uh, He served two years at Research Associate at the Kansas City Fed and holds a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia, Roger Garrison. Uh, Thank you, Alan. Uh, The paper that I prepared for today has the title, uh, Interest Rate Targeting uh, During the Great Moderation, Uh, none of which I'll read to you in the name of time, but I'll tell you the stories uh, uh, from that paper. Uh, The Great Moderation is a term you've already heard this morning uh, from Don Cohn, and it refers to uh, a period starting in about the mid-1980s up until uh, we began to have problems a year and a half ago. Uh, And and the moderation essentially uh, describes a a period 
where recessions were few, uh, they were short, and they were mild, and otherwise the unemployment rate and the inflation rate were kept uh, at uh, tolerable levels, therefore a great uh, moderation. Uh, now, in looking at this period, it reminds me that interest rate targeting uh, was something that uh, uh, began to be practiced uh, in about that period uh, after uh, about three years' worth of money supply targeting. And there's a certain parallel that I want to draw here and uh, uh, call your attention to, uh, and that is that uh, in the uh, 1979 to 1982 uh, period, uh, this is back when I was in graduate school, uh, we had a monetary experiment, uh, monetarist experiment, so-called. It wasn't all that monetarist, except they did engage, the Fed did engage in money supply targeting as opposed to interest rate targeting. Uh, that was done, though, on the heels of the brief tenure of G. William Miller, who had managed to get us some very high inflation rates. Uh, we had... Uh, inflation rates and interest rates uh, chasing themselves uphill in a, quite a race uh, until finally being brought down uh, by Paul Volcker. Uh, Volcker, more uh, of the monitor's school. Uh, and it turns out, though, that the damage was done at that time uh, because uh, the financial markets were straining to deal with a, uh, a federal funds rate of uh, close to 20%. Uh, and to deal with the inflation that was going on uh, at the time. And it was during that time that we got some legislation that essentially destroyed our ability to identify a meaningful money supply figure. Uh, that was a period in which uh, we just didn't know what money supply to look at. Regulation Q that had been in place uh, had created a crisp distinction between money on the one hand and saving on the other. It's a regulation that I, I've referred to elsewhere as the irony of monetarism, that uh, Milton Friedman, of course, was a champion of the market, generally didn't like regula uh, regulations. But that one regulation seemed to be necessary in order to be able to define a meaningful money supply and therefore pursue uh, money supply targeting as opposed to interest rate targeting, which was really more Keynesian in its orientation. Um, so uh, at uh, about 82 uh, and thereafter, uh, money supply targeting was out, okay? It just couldn't be done. Uh, we didn't know what the money supply was uh, anymore, to quote uh, Alan Greenspan uh, a few years later. Um, and, and so the interest rate targeting that began uh, was not so much uh, something that Paul Volcker wanted to do. It was just the only game in town. That was the only thing to do uh, was interest rate targeting. Uh, and uh, willy-nilly had to adopt what I've called a learning-by-doing approach to interest rate targeting. By its very nature, uh, the interest rate, the intertemporal aspect of a market economy, is not something that you can centralize in the way you can centralize the money supply. We may not like the fact that the money supply is centralized, but at least the economy can adapt to whatever money supply the Federal Reserve provides, sometimes very painfully uh, adapt, but adapt nonetheless. Uh, but interest rates are in the province of the market, uh, as we've already heard from our previous speakers. 
there is something called a natural rate, and to somehow centralize that aspect of the market and engage in interest rate targeting uh, is to invite uh, trouble. Um, adding to the trouble uh, is the fact that uh, knowing which interest rate to target becomes increasingly more difficult with the financial innovations that we've seen in subprime mortgages and, and uh, the securitization of the mortgage market. It's difficult to read uh, and what it means, and we'll see that uh, later in my talk. Um, the criteria used uh, to determine how to set interest rates are not that related to intertemporal markets. They're simply the current unemployment rate and the, and the current uh, inflation rate as a very sort of almost a textbook Keynesian uh, uh, kind of guidance to decide on how to set uh, interest rates. Uh, and, and during this great moderation, those two things were relatively well uh, behaved, so much so that uh, this explains why uh, one economist, Bill Graham, I have in mind, uh, took a look at uh, inflation rate and unemployment uh, uh, last July and on that, on that basis concluded that uh, we have a nation of whiners, that something must, you know, we don't know what they're troubled about, what's wrong with the unemployment rate and the inflation rate. They seem to be uh, just fine. There was always discussion at the Fed about sustainable growth, but that didn't factor much uh, into the decision about uh, how to set the, those rates. In fact, what did seem to factor in was the so-called Taylor Rule, which you've heard uh, quite a bit about uh, uh, today in, uh, with our earlier sessions. But it turns out that the Taylor Rule, if you go back and look at the original article, the 93 article, you discover that it was initially uh, a rule that simply described what the Fed was doing. And then it shortly became a, a prediction, a contingent prediction. In other words, if the Fed keeps doing what it's been doing, then here's what interest rates is likely to set. But soon enough, it became a prescription. Uh, and this is what Taylor uh, enunciated himself in the 93 article, how it could become a prescription. And that is, if the Fed likes what it's been doing and wants to keep doing it, then it could use the Taylor rule. Okay. Uh, the Fed never actually endorsed the Taylor rule, but movements in the interest rate up until uh, uh, 2003 uh, pretty much tracked uh, what the Taylor rule would predict. I call this a learning by doing uh, technique, and yet a better name would probably be a so far so good technique. Uh, and then uh, in later stages of the boom, uh, whistling in the dark technique, okay? Because it turns out that the, that the true learning, uh, you see, learning by doing. The doing occurs about every six or seven weeks when the Federal Open Market Committee has to decide anew what interest rate to set. The learning comes about once a decade when they learn whether or not that the boom that they were presiding over was artificial or not, okay? Uh, so if you go back and reapply the Taylor rule using Taylor's uh, prescription, in other words, if the Fed likes what they were doing, they should keep doing it. Uh, I think that no longer applies. I think uh, once we get through this difficult period, however long that might take, a year and a half, two years, or whatever it is, uh, the Fed would be ill-advised to go back to uh, its, its learning by doing 
unless the learning is an anticipation of still another downturn uh, some decade later. Uh, I'll, I want to make a brief comment about uh, Greenspan and his claim that uh, you don't know whether you're in a boom uh, until it goes bust. He actually makes three claims. Uh, one is, yes, we knew there was a bubble. We tried to prick it with mild monetary tightening and failed. And the second claim, well, you don't really know you're in a bubble until it busts. And then the third claim is, uh, oh, well, yes, it is a bubble, but you can't prick it now because of all the collateral damage that it would cause. Uh, he does claim in his own defense that in maintaining low interest rates, he was just riding the natural rate down or riding the market rate down and wasn't being uh, overly expansionary. <coughs> Uh, and yet, what we can see, again, given the financial innovations and the movements in the interest rate, that if, in fact, you can't tell whether you're in a boom until it goes bust, then you can't tell whether you're riding the natural rate down or feeding an artificial boom. Okay? So uh, uh, Greenspan was a little bit inconsistent with him uh, in his own description of what he was doing. I'll conclude... Uh, by suggesting that uh, just like the money supply rule was pretty much out of play uh, at the time that Greenspan uh, assumed his position, the interest rate rule should be out of play uh, at the time uh, that we get through this initial, this uh, current difficulties. And yet that leaves us with a problem. There aren't any other rules uh, that uh, are on the table. Uh, but uh, since I'm giving this lecture in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, uh, I don't hesitate to mention that maybe we should go back and take an another look at F.A. Hayek's book on the denationalization of money. I think uh, hope for the economy relies in, in reducing the power of, of the Federal Reserve rather than figuring out still another rule it can follow. Thank you. Our last speaker is Bert Ely, who is president of Ely & Company. He could also be CEO and CFO, I suppose, if he wanted to be. And Chief Jenner. Yeah, and Chief Jenner. He specialized in deposit insurance and banking issues since 1981. I used to think those were dull topics. Not anymore. As the savings and loan situation worsened, he became one of the first persons to publicly predict a taxpayer bailout of the FSLIC in '86 and to predict the non-crisis in commercial banking in 91 and in 92, uh, predicted the forthcoming taxpayer bailout of the Japanese banking system. Uh, going further back, before 72, Ely served as chief financial officer of a public company as a management consultant to Touche Rose and Company and as an auditor with uh, Ernst & Ernst. In recent years, uh, Bert's been sounding the alarm about financial risks posed to taxpayers by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, bless his heart, He's co-authored two AEI monographs on Fannie and Freddie, and he's testified before Congress uh, about their problems. Uh, he holds an MBA from Harvard, Bertie Lee. Uh, thank you, Alan, and I'm glad to be here today. Again, I hope that you've had a chance to uh, to, to pick up my paper. It was uh, one of the supplemental uh, handouts because I was a little late getting it in to get it reproduced. Um, I want to uh, just summarize it uh, very quickly in the in the time that's here and try to hit some of the key points. First of all, what I do is try to look at what I call the interactions of the physics of finance 
and human behavior. Uh, you know, the folks on the left have gotten a little enamored of, of behavioral economics. Uh, probably folks on, on, on the right and free market types might have a little uh, problem with that. But actually, I think uh, uh, behavioral economics may have an offer, a lot to offer to us as we look at the current crisis and what um, – some of the policy solutions should be uh, uh, going going forward. And let me just run over those. I, I identified five. Um, uh, what do I consider to be kind of natural human characteristics that we all uh, or most people engage in almost without thinking about? It? First of all, is trying to arbitrage the rules of the game to gain an advantage. Um, and, of course, this is what keeps a lot of lawyers, particularly tax lawyers, busy uh, in, in, in this town and, and consultants and others. But we see this in, in, in athletics of, of folks trying to, uh, to gain the rules. We see it with, uh, among other things, equipment technology in athletics. And so the rule makers are always having to, to respond to that. So that's characteristic number one. We try to gain the rules. Um, and I think that's a perfectly natural tendency. The second uh, is in a, in a financial context to try and profit from a positive sloping yield curve. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, the yield curve is positive sloping. Therefore, if you borrow short and lend long, uh, then you can make more money than if you maturity mis- than if you maturity match. The SNL crisis taught, or I thought taught, the dangers of um, maturity mismatching. Uh, but when I take a look at some of the recent events, like with auction rate securities. Uh, uh, um, uh, structured uh, in investment vehicles and the like, we find maturity mismatching was alive and well and very uh, destructive. We have to recognize that that is uh, a characteristic. The third is over-extrapolating trends. Uh, the longer a trend goes in a certain direction, the more people buy into it. Um, and, of course, we've seen that in, uh, in stock market uh, booms, and we've seen it more recently in housing prices. Fourth, it kind of follows off net, is getting caught up in herd behavior. It gets harder and harder to be a contrarian, whether you're an individual or working in a large organization, when you're, you're, you're kind of talking against uh, the, the boom, so to, so to speak. And the fifth is an excess reliance on expert opinion. Now, we all do this. We kind of uh, talk to others who supposedly have done research on something and, and, uh, uh, and check things out. I mean, I do this uh, uh, quite a bit, but I think it's quite characteristic. And in the financial services sector, in the financial services sector, there are two specific types of experts where there has been a lot of reliance placed. Number one is accountants, CPAs, audited financial statements, and the other is credit. Uh, rating agencies. So that's <coughs> another aspect of human behavior. The more complex the world gets, the more likelihood there is to place a reliance on expert uh, uh, expert opinion. So let me draw some conclusions uh, <coughs> from this, and I apologize for this cold. Uh, first is that it becomes important to align the self-interest of individuals as well as organizations with the desired macroeconomic societal uh, outcomes. The um, <coughs> One of the approaches towards dealing with this kind of situation, we're going to see this in a Democratic Congress next year, is we've got to write more prescriptive uh, (coughs) uh, rules and try to steer human behavior. I would argue that's a recipe for for non-success, if not disaster, because it doesn't take into account the extent to which people try to gain rules. The second is to rely on incentives which launch self-correcting mechanisms in the, fire, in, the, in the financial marketplace sooner rather than later. And I think well, the bubble we've seen in housing is an excellent example of why, in effect, the, um, the self-correcting mechanisms were not uh, uh, there. The third is to minimize uh, uh, reliance on expert opinions. And to, within the context of a financial system and complexity, of try to uh, reduce the role that, uh, that the experts play. 
The, the fourth is to seek to minimize, and I emphasize, minimize complexity in financial instruments and transactions. One of the questions I've been asking myself, why are a lot of these financial transactions so complex? I would say that that is a product of arbitrage, that uh, you, can, you create complex mechanisms to get around uh, the rules, and I'll come back to that. And the fifth is to recognize the role that technology has played. And we've heard a lot about that here on, on, on this uh, panel, because what technology did is allow – uh, and specifically computer technology, is, allow, uh, is to allow a lot of financial innovations to actually take place, to transfer, go from theory to actual application because computing power became uh, so powerful. And a good way to look at this is if we were back 30 years ago, and I, pick, I appreciate what Brian was saying about uh, uh, Penn Square and oil loans and so, f- so forth, but I would suggest to you that today's transactions are, and, and types of securities are far more complex because technology has allowed it. And, you know, that's a reality. If anything, the technology is going to get um, uh, 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 cheaper per dollar of whatever it is you're trying to do. And also there's another aspect of, of technology is important. It's not just the computer, but it's quantitative methods that, uh, again, have uh, fed into this. Now, uh, the next part of the main part of the paper looks at nine underlying public policy causes of the financial crisis, causes that have been there for a long time, and deregulation is not one of them. I will emphasize that deregulation is not one of them. First of all is the Internal Revenue Code. I see that as, uh, as, as, as problem uh, number one, because what does, it, what does the Internal Revenue Code do? It um, incents individuals and organizations to overleverage by uh, making interest on debt tax-deductible, particularly mortgage debt, and, uh, and profits from business enterprise subject to uh, taxation or double taxation in the case of corporations that pay uh, dividends. And I'll refer you to a chart on, on page 6 uh, in, in the paper where I look at the growth of the estimated market value of mortgage debt relative to personal income um, adjusted for changes in home ownership rate. And I, there are really two lines on that chart. The first, the upper line, illustrates the housing bubble that uh, that took place. And I might add I'm using uh, Federal Reserve flow of funds data for this, and, of course, we know that that's accurate data. But the lower line is the increase in mortgage debt. One of the things I found very interesting, for 40 years from basically um, – this the chart shows 66, but if you go back even, even further than that um, uh, – there was a mortgage debt relative to the estimated market value of homes was stayed relatively constant. It kind of fell in a range of the low 30% range. Didn't vary a lot. 1986 tax act get, gets passed, barring the uh, deduction of interest for anything other than a home mortgage. Well, what do we see in the lower line of that chart? That takes off. Um, to me, it's a classic example of how uh, we had tax policy uh, supposedly to the benefit uh, the, con- the the consumer, the homeowner, actually uh, develop into one of the root causes of this crisis because of the over leverage uh, that it promoted. And of course, the problem now is house price. And you see this on the right side of the of the figure is house prices are coming down faster than debt is coming down. I think that's going to continue, and that squeezes homeowners even more, which is why you hear all this talk about having uh, 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 more and more homeowners underwater on their. Um, uh, on their uh, um, uh, on their mortgages, and I just want to conclude this section by by offering you a thought experiment. Imagine that corporate profits were not taxed at all, uh, and that interest paid by anybody, individual uh, or business, any type of interest was not tax deductible. What kind of leverage would exist in the economy? In the economy, what kind of uh, of um, uh, 
capital structures uh, would we have? What would household balance sheets look like? I would suggest to you they look uh, 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 quite a bit uh, uh, different. And in particular, financial institutions would be much less leveraged than they, than they have been. So I think we have to look to the tax code. The second is prescriptive and proscriptive safety and soundness uh, 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 regulation, because what that does, again, is create the incentive to arbitrage. And I'll refer you to the chart on, uh, on page uh, uh, 9 called Changes in Credit Intermediation uh, Shares. What we have seen emerge in recent decades has been what I call shadow banking, as banks and depository institutions have lost um, uh, market share, if you will, in provisioning credit. Now, many people think this is, this is good, that these, the shadow banking, and this is um, asset securitization, it's the money market mutual funds, it's the commercial uh, uh, paper uh, market, and uh, hedge funds and so forth. It's basically credit intermediation flowing outside uh, the banking system and not through other traditional channels such as insurance companies. And you can see how that uh, has grown. And I would suggest to you that that is a product of regulatory arbitrage. Uh, but the question is, has that been good for the economy, uh, both from an efficiency standpoint as well as the risk in the economy? Um, so uh, that's uh, number two. Number three, that um, we, we have policies in, in, in place that, that basically discourage maturity um, uh, mismatching. And um, uh, a chart and, and there, again, I think it's a matter of taxation on equity capital and, um, among other things, for instance, uh, discouraging the use of, uh, of covered bonds in financing uh, mortgages. Number four, fair value accounting. It's been touched on uh, uh, before. Brian uh, mentioned that. And uh, that has certainly exacerbated uh, uh, situations where people feel forced to sell assets even if they can afford to hold them. They have to recognize losses even if they can afford to hold them. Um, the fifth is... Uh, the enforcement of credit default swaps where there's no insurable interest. If you go out and, and try to buy an insurance policy on an individual or building, let's say this, this building here, and you don't have any interest in it, whether it's an owner or borrower, you can't get the policy. The policy is unenforceable. And yet in credit default swaps, uh, uh, we allow that, allow that. And a lot of the credit default swaps are outstanding. Neither party has any insurable interest that they're trying to protect or hedge. Uh, and in effect, it's a, it's a form of gambling. The sixth is, is mis, mispriced deposit insurance. I think we're in a world picking up on something I think that Charlie said. You know, we're probably going to have deposit insurance uh, going forward. But uh, the problem we have today is it's mispriced, particularly for the, uh, uh, the, the riskiest institutions. The seventh is the First Amendment protection that the credit rating agencies have. Because they can't be sued for uh, basically bad calls on credit risk, um, uh, they're able to kind of go on uh, on their merry way. And yet in another area of opinion, that is certified public uh, accountants in the financial statements they certify, they can be sued. They've been driven out of business. Look at Arthur Anderson. I would suggest to you that if the credit rating agencies could be sued for negligence, uh, we would have a lot less in the way of, of, of complex financial insurance out there because either no one would rate them or uh, they would put very low ratings on them. Eighth, government-sponsored uh, enterprises, who, which effectively serve to distort um, uh, the, the uh, interest rate on, on housing and, again, provided excessive underpriced uh, credit. Ninth, the overpromotion of home ownership. Uh, and, um, particularly, and, and, again, a chart on page uh, 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 16 illustrates how, as we increase the home ownership rate in this country from 64 to 69 percent, um, the, uh, the, the bubble in, uh, in housing prices uh, went up 
uh, 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 along with it. And one of the things that troubles me about the solutions that are being discussed today is it is trying to increase homeownership and to subsidize it uh, further in a time when, frankly, we ought to be letting it uh, taper off to a more uh, natural level uh, as it was for a number of years before the recent uh, spike. Tenth, the Glass-Steagall Act. Now, that has finally gone away. Glass-Steagall, of course, should have never been enacted because that's what created the separate investment banking industry that brought us many of our problems. The, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley uh, legislation in 1999 was supposed to bring together a melding of, um, of commercial investment banking. It didn't happen because the investment banks didn't want to be uh, subject to the heavy hand of Fed regulation. Uh, don't take any offense to that, folks. Uh, uh, but what's happened is it finally is – the investment banking industry finally has come to an end uh, largely um, due to failures and conversion to bank holding companies. It's unfortunate it took uh, this event to, uh, to do that. And finally, of course, the monetary policy, and specifically the uh, excessively low interest rates earlier in this decade – because what that did is that incented people to get into adjustable rate mortgages relative to fixed rate mortgages. And that's where we saw a lot of the abuse through such things as teaser rates, option arms, and, and so forth. Let me close by just pointing out uh, one other thing that the last two charts in the paper on pages 18 or 19 is an issue that needs to be uh, recognized as an issue, and that is the growing inefficiency inefficiency of financial intermediation in this country, specifically the financing and insuring of assets. If you take a look at value added out of the finance and insurance sector, it has risen steadily as a percentage of GDP, and it's risen steadily as uh, a, a percentage of, uh, uh, of the ta- tangible assets and durable goods in the economy. It has become increasingly expensive to uh, insure and finance the economy, and the question is why. And I would argue it's ultimately the product of a lot of these things I've talked about uh, before, particularly the regulatory arbitraging, and that's why when you turn to the chart on page 19, you see an indication of the tremendous increase in compensation in the for- as reflected in value added in the financial services sec- sector. This is just classic rent-seeking. And I would suggest to you that uh, not only do we have to have policy changes that bring about a, a safer, sounder financial system with self-correcting mechanisms c- kicking in earlier, but also a recognition that there's a lot of cost, a lot of bloat that needs to be taken out of the financial system. With that, I thank you and look forward to the Q&A and discussion. Not a heck of a lot of time for Q&A, but let's get to it as soon as uh – you can. Let's see. I don't go on hands. There's a gentleman right there. I, I see you back in the back. Um, Mr. Westbury, you mentioned um, estimating the natural interest rate through the GDP and seeing whether or not the target rate is too tight or too loose by comparison. Um, would you say that uh, the natural rate is the ideal rate and the deviation is a bad thing? And if so, um, how would we transition to what Mr. Garrison mentioned, like a uh, decentralization of our monetary policy that where a natural interest rate <coughs> would arise? Yeah, well, I mean, if, if you got rid of the Federal Reserve, a natural interest rate would exist. I mean, I think when you have 12 people sitting around a table deciding what the interest rate is, it's not going to always be the natural rate. And, you know, what's interesting about this is that People say today if the Fed were to raise rates, it would kill the economy. It would knock the housing market down. It would High interest rates are always assumed to be bad. But if you go back and you look at the 80s and 90s, 
We had very high real interest rates during that entire time. Um, and the stock market performed well. The economy performed well. Inflation remained low. It was the 70s when we had very low real interest rates or interest rates below the target. And the last six or seven, eight years where we've had interest rates way below the targets where we've had problems in the markets. And so uh, what, what politically happens, and Alan Greenspan has said this, the gold standard couldn't last, I'm paraphrasing, because of politics. I mean, basically, it, it just couldn't withstand the pressure. Um, that's one of the reasons that this is the definition. What happens is the political pressure is always to drive interest rates below the natural level, um, and that creates inflation, that creates overuse of leverage, that creates a mismatching of assets that Bert was talking about, all of these things. So the, the way you get back to it is you use Milton Friedman's computer, you use uh, Irving Fisher's commodity price rule, you use there's, a, there's lots of people that have talked about those things, but I think that's what you were uh, getting at when... Yeah, well, of course, one point is that with the Fed in play, uh, there really is no way to estimate the natural rate any, any more than in the command economy you could... Uh, you know, estimate the market price of steel, that, 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 that uh, those prices get overridden by the command economy or the interest rate gets overridden by the uh, Federal Reserve. So one of the reasons to move in the direction of denationalization is so, is so we uh, can have a mechanism that will uh, give us a natural rate, namely the market. There was a gentleman in the pink shirt in the back there. Hi, uh, Sam Baker from Transnational Research. My question is for Roger Garrison. I, I have uh, a lot of sympathy for the ideas that, that you uh, presented. Um, my question has to do with, with your assumption that, that interest rate targeting is was a learning by doing exercise. I mean, I, I thought central banks, that's what they, they've been doing for decades and decades. I mean, in the 1920s, the Fed, you know, targeted an interest rate and... and uh, uh, reduced interest rates below where they might otherwise have been in, in uh, reaction to the, the Bank of England, which, which uh, requested lower rates so gold wouldn't flow to the U.S. And, and uh, William Poole wrote the paper, definitive paper in 1970 or, or such, comparing whether, you know, rate targeting or monetary aggregate targeting was the proper uh, rule for a, for a central bank. So I'm just wondering where... where why you articulate that 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 uh, interest rate targeting is, is merely learning by doing? Well, uh, I think it was learning by doing in the 1920s uh, as well. Uh, it was also uh, uh, following the uh, real bills doctrine, which was actually written into the legislation creating the Federal Reserve. And uh, the arg the argument uh, that I would make is that uh, during the 20s, where we had a lot of uh, innovations, not not financial innovations so much as just uh, real innovations, uh, mass production of automobiles and a number of other things, uh, the, uh, the natural rate of interest would have been rising. There would have been increased demand for loans to take advantage of the innovative techniques, and the Fed didn't let the interest rate rise uh, because it was following the real bills doctrine and learned, I suppose we could say, after 1929, uh, that they'd been holding the interest rate too low. Okay, so still learning by doing. It's just, and it's a mismatch between the time period that you're learning and the time period you're doing <laughs> that causes the trouble. By the way, uh, Hayek added to my list of metaphors 
uh, the, the uh, whistling in the dark is followed by tiger by the tail, That's w which is uh, the position that Greenspan found himself in in the late stages of the boom. Just to follow up on something Roger uh, said, we're, there's always going to be a lag effect there because there are always new lessons being learned, if nothing else, because of, of new technologies that, uh, that come along. So that is almost a constant that uh, uh, the learning experience and, and the lessons to be learned lag behind what's uh, taking place out there in the real world. I'm afraid we're running out of time. Um, yeah, I think we're pretty much started a little late and, and talked too much. I talked too much. Uh, and I'm standing between you and lunch, which is never a very safe place to be. <laughs> the, only, the only worst thing would be between you and cocktail hour, which is really dangerous. Uh, so I, I think we will call it close. And you, you can talk to us, obviously, over lunch. And, and uh, we'd be glad to, if you give the, the panel a hand, and we'll see you out there.